We'll remain standing, and let's take our Bibles out this morning and once again open them to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 11. We will read verses 12 through 25 this morning. We'll just be looking at the last uh, few verses of that passage, but that we might... uh, Pick up where we left off and understand the context of what we've been reading. We'll begin in verse 12. This is God's word. People of God, let us give heed to its reading today. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not yet the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. As we get ready to look into this passage, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that your spirit would be the one who teaches us this morning. We pray that we would be enriched in our understanding of these things before us as we look into your word. We thank you for it. And we thank you for your spirit who comes alongside us to help us and to help us understand. And we pray that he would. And we ask this all for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. So we read that larger passage this morning of which our text for this morning is a part as Mark arranges the material in his gospel. Um, From looking at at other parallel passages in the other Gospels, it is somewhat apparent that the statements by Jesus that we have in verses 22 through 25, which is what we'll be looking at this morning, are gathered from other teachings of Christ and inserted here by Mark. Remember that that each of the, the Gospel writers gathering all the information that they have arrange it in slightly different ways based on their audience and uh, their purpose in presenting the gospel as they particularly do it. 
Um, and here, uh, Mark has given to us these things uh, in the order that he would like us to see them, and of course, under the sovereign supervision of the Holy Spirit, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. They give us, these verses this morning, give us what is really the only teaching on prayer that Mark has in his Gospels, in his Gospel. And it parallels other passages in, in the other Gospels. We'll mention that a little bit uh, when we get to it. But these things all arise out of this episode that we, we looked at last week in some detail of Jesus cursing this fig tree uh, on which there was no fruit and his activity then in the temple of him uh, clearing away those who were defiling the temple, making what should be the house of prayer into uh, a marketplace, really. We looked at that last week. And then on the morning after Jesus had cursed the fig tree and then cleansed the temple, as they had come back into Jerusalem, he and his disciples, after spending the night probably in the nearby village of Bethany where they were staying um, during this time, Verse 20 tells us that they passed that fig tree again. And they see that overnight that it has withered away to its roots. Verse 21 that we read this morning says that Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, the disciples had seen some amazing things hadn't they? Firsthand. Things really much more impressive than this fig tree dying the way that it did. I mean, Jesus had walked in the middle of a storm out to their boat, walking on the water as he came. He had made the blind to see. He made the deaf to hear. He made the lame to walk. He delivered people in an instant from long-standing demon possession Twice he fed huge groups of people, uh, multiple thousands of people, with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He's even raised people from the dead. And yet Peter seems amazed that Jesus could speak to a fig tree and say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and that that tree would completely wither up from its roots overnight. Certainly a miracle but nothing more than he and the other disciples had seen. And yet Peter seems shocked. Rabbi, look. Imagine that. Look at this. What happened? Well, that statement gives an opportunity here for a teaching on faith and on forgiveness and on prayer. In verse 22 is the response, really, then to Peter's surprise. Verse 20 We have Peter saying, uh, or in verse 21, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered, being surprised about that. And then in verse 22, we read that Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And that statement pivots this whole discussion to the subject of prayer. Now, specific reference to prayer won't come in until we get to verse 24, but it is quite clear that, this, that prayer is the topic of this whole section. 
And Jesus is going to teach them about prayer, and he's going to lay down two explicit requirements for effective prayer. And by necessity, to understand for us this morning the subject of prayer, we're going to add uh, some things from other places in the Scripture, other teachings of Jesus, in regard to prayer to help us understand better this thing we call prayer. But the first thing that Jesus lays down as a necessity for prayer is faith. Believing God. Jesus says, have faith in God. That's how he opens up this section. Have faith in God. And isn't that, beloved, the most basic thing in a Christian life? Faith is, from beginning to end, essential to everything in our lives, isn't it? It is by faith that we're saved, justified by faith, sanctified by faith, growth in the Christian life by faith. And it's only through faith that we are able to please God. But faith is something that we are given. It is a gift of God, Paul says. In everything that we do as Christians, Christian, faith in God is central. And it is faith in God that is central, not just faith. Not some general amorphous kind of faith in nothing in particular, as is so popular in today's vocabulary, have faith. But faith is knowing what God has done, what he has said, what he has commanded, what he has promised. And faith is believing that all that he has promised, he either has done or he will do. Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That is, that we, we see, we are assured of the things that we can't yet see with our eyes by our faith. Even our Lord himself and our reaction to him. In 1 Peter 1.8, Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, he says, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That, through faith, that connection with Christ through faith. So faith is knowing, faith is believing. And most importantly, faith is resting in those things that you know and that you believe. A settled conviction in your heart that God has done these things for me, for you. The Heidelberg Catechism calls it a wholehearted trust. That's the essence of faith. Humbly and with childlike attitude, childlike abandon, entrusting ourselves to God. Jesus' power to destroy a fig tree should not have shocked Peter or the others. And doubt should not enter into our evaluation of what God can do. 
That is to say that since we believe God, we can have believing prayer. Prayer that believes. Prayer that knows that God can and will do what we ask Him to do. That's what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus continues speaking to the disciples and says, in effect, you think that drawing up a fig tree is something? Well, and then verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now before we dive into that statement there, let me make an observation here. If we're not careful, it may sound like we are able to just command on our own, the way that Jesus said, peace be still, the way he said, Lazarus, come forth, that that we can say, mountain, be moved. But that's not even the way that this is presented. You know, as if we could do this, we could uh, command the mountain to be plucked up and, and thrown around as if we are commanding them. But look at the very end of this verse. Uh, that, it, it, that if one says and if one believes that it will happen, that it will be done for him. This is not the language of command at all. This is the language of prayer. The person here is, is not to be understood as having the power to, to pluck up the mountain, to change the reality or to alter the landscape or anything. The point is that the person, you, in fact, have the right to ask God to do these things that are under consideration that we'll look at in a moment, and he will do it. He will do it. Not you. You request it to be done. And then he says, it will be done for you. And of course, he gives a requirement right at the beginning. We've already mentioned in verse 22. That requirement is faith. Believe God. Have faith in God. That's verse 22. Verse 23 says it again. Says it in a positive way. Says it in a negative way. He says that this person that does this does not doubt in his heart. That's the negative way of looking at it. The positive comes right after that, but believes that what he says will come to pass. So Jesus gives these these descriptions here of the way things uh, are, the way that they will be. Then in verse 24, he follows it up with a command and a promise based on what he says in verse 23. Look at verse 24. He says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, and here's the command, believe that you have received, and here's the promise, and it will be yours. Beloved people of God, what a great and precious promise that is. What a great and precious promise that if we believe that God will do for us what we ask. Now, it's a great and a precious promise, but it is also, sadly, a misunderstood promise, a misrepresented promise. 
It is a grossly distorted promise in some quarters of the church today. In fact, prayer itself, one of the greatest benefits a Christian receives by virtue of being adopted as a child of God is by men, in the minds of men, at the instigation of the devil himself, one of the most distorted topics in the Bible. Not least by that false teaching that we know as the word of faith movement that says, you command God. You have a blank check. Anything you want, anything you pray about, anything that you, you believe for, you will have. And while we reject the errors of that, some of which we'll talk about in a little bit here, this passage speaks to us, Christian, and, and what I don't want us to do is to be so cautious. We need to be cautious about the, the errors of the word of faith teaching. But we don't want to be so cautious about that side of the pendulum that we let it swing so far to the other side that we don't believe what the Bible says about prayer. This passage speaks of the importance and of the power of prayer. And here, the critical importance of faith in prayer. And Jesus begins, as he goes to explain this in verse 23, he begins with one of those statements that says, this is serious, listen to this. He says, truly I say to you. And then he says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now let's deal with, with this idea of this mountain being taken up and thrown into the sea. What does that mean? There are different people who have come uh, along and, and said that this mountain that Jesus is talking about is the mountain that the temple is on, the temple mount, we call it now. Um, some others say, no, it's the Mount of Olives that he's talking about. He could see that and, and look down into the Dead Sea, and that's what he was referring to. But what it's most likely that Jesus is doing as he says this here is making a reference to a, a way of speaking that the Jewish rabbis used very commonly. And that was a way of them speaking of something that was impossible. They would talk about moving a mountain. We do that today, don't we? We talk about moving mountains, the ability to move mountains when we're talking about something that can't be done. That's the way the Jewish rabbis used this terminology, and that's what Jesus is doing here. This is a, a hyperbolic, proverbial statement. He's exaggerating for effect, he, by which he means if you pray for something that's impossible or that to you is impossible or to others it's impossible no matter how physically difficult it is he says you can receive an answer to it but you have to have faith in God not that prayer is some magic language that we can wield to our advantage 
and to our advancement for our own purposes and our own designs, and of which faith is sort of the catalyst to kick that uh, reaction off. But the New Testament, when it teaches prayer, teaches that prayer is a humble entreating of God for him to meet a need that is in harmony with his word. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But faith, Jesus says, is critical. Believe, he says, that you will receive what you ask for. And that, he says, is essential and it is empowering. Prayer is a positive means, Christians, of receiving what we ask for. It's not just a religious exercise. And it's not a religious exercise because God, whom we address when we pray, is not just an idea, he's not just a figurehead, but he is the living and true God who is good, who is gracious, who is loving, and who is all-powerful. The Heidelberg Catechism, again, talking about prayer and and the way God answers prayer. It says that he is, is able to do all these things that we might ask for because he is God and he is willing to because he is our Father in heaven. And Jesus is saying that prayer can bring about amazing things. It can bring about all appropriate things Listen, not not because of our faith, but because through faith we make confident appeal to the one who created and who upholds all things and is able to do anything that he wills to do. See, neither faith nor prayer do anything in and of themselves. It is God, isn't it? It is God who acts in response to faithful prayer who affects change. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. But God, through prayer, changes things. Does prayer change God? No. Can prayer change things? Yes. See, he doesn't even need to to hear and answer prayer. He could just work out his plan. But in his wisdom, God has chosen to work out his providence in this world, at least partly, through answering the prayers of his people. That's why prayer is so important. Because God has willingly bound himself to it, to move his plan along through the world by answering your prayer. So you better be praying for the appropriate things, which is still coming. Small things, big things, huge things, even things as seemingly impossible as pulling up Mount Shasta and casting it into the Pacific Ocean. And anything else. Notice verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever 
you ask in prayer. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whatever it is, if it's big, if it's small, believe that you will receive it. Again, stand by for important qualifications to that statement. But faith is what gives confidence to our prayers. Confidence of those things hoped for but not yet seen. And that confidence, according to Jesus' words here, is and must be absolute. In verse 23, it says that a person must believe that what he says will come to pass. You see that there, verse 23? The grammar of that statement in the original says that we are to believe that what we say, what we are asking for, is already happening. It's already coming to pass. Not because we're speaking reality into existence. That's nonsense. But because of who God is and because of his promises. Look at verse 24. Notice, does he say, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will receive it? No, that's not what it says. It says, believe that you have received it. How do you do that? If you're asking for it, it must be something that you don't have yet, so how can you believe that you have received it? He's saying that you can be, you should be, because of your faith in God and your understanding of God, you should be, should be so sure of receiving the answer that you believe that you have, in fact, in essence, already received it. If I'm sitting on the the couch and Cindy gets up and I say, Cindy, while you're up, would you get me a soda? That's a real example, by the way. I don't have to doubt at all that she'll do it. I can... Ask that with the understanding that I have have as good as already received it. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's like Romans 8. You know in Romans 8.30, where Paul is giving us the golden chain of salvation, and he gets to the end of that, uh, talking about those that he, he has justified. He says, those he justified, he also glorified. Well, yes, we, we have been justified, but we won't be glorified until Jesus comes back. But Paul is saying, and his language is reflecting, that it is such a sure thing, based on this chain, the connection of these things that he gives, it is such a sure thing, based on the truth of God's will, on the truth of God's word, that Paul can speak of it and does speak of it as if it had already happened. Those he justified, he also glorified. You in prayer, believe that you have received what you ask. So that's what Mark is doing here in, in quoting Jesus. When you pray, believe that you have already received it. Again, this is not to be understood as some of this new age hooey that we hear so much of. But the depth of faith that we should have in the fact of God's answer. And his promise. 
So how can we come to prayer, how can we come in prayer to God with that kind of confidence? Because that's what Jesus is saying we should do. The kind of confidence that doesn't doubt, but believes that we will receive it. How can we do that? Well, one way is that we have these promises of God that like we've just read that say that. And the Bible gives us at so many places the assurance that God answers prayer and that nothing is too difficult for him. And so we can have faith that he will answer. These verses, as I say, are a prime example. We could look at other places in Scripture as well. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. John 14, 14 says, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, 23 says, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And we could go on and on. But you might be thinking, well, isn't that all the stuff that the word of faith people say that the Bible says? Believe, believe strongly, have enough faith, and you'll get whatever your heart desires. Is that the extent of the Bible's teaching on prayer? Well, of course, the answer to that is no. The word of faith people teach that it is, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The New Testament doesn't teach that. And you know, the Bible teaches a lot about prayer. And we can't even begin to get through all of it this morning. But we can skim across the top. Let's do that. Skim across the top of some of it, enough to give us a better grasp of this passage. Because this is a passage that we need to have context to properly understand. And to not veer off into some of the errors that people in some corners of the church have done. And perhaps as important, we can get an answer to the questions that come up because of the fact that this is just one small teaching from our Lord on a very big subject. But there are other requirements for prayer that falls into this category things that we are to be asking. The Bible doesn't say just ask anything, does it? What are some of the biblical requirements for answered prayer? And therefore, for prayer that we can pray to God and have the assurance that we have, that we can be confident when we pray. Well, let me mention some of them to you. Let's do seven. Seven's a good Bible number. Some things we'll see in this list have to do with heart and motives, and others have to do with content. They're both in here. The first thing that has to be true in, other, in order for us to have confidence when we come to God in prayer, in order for anyone to have confidence when they come to God in prayer, is that you must be a believer in God. You must be a Christian The Bible is very clear that God has only bound himself to hear the prayers of Christians. He may hear the prayers of non-Christians, but he is not in a situation where he says he does, without a doubt. 
Our own passage today begins with the need to have faith in God. And you know that not only must we have faith in God to answer prayer, but we must first have faith in God to save. Psalm 109 Verse 7 says that the prayer of the wicked man, the prayer of the unbeliever who is apart from God, the prayer of the wicked man should be counted as sin. And John 9.3 says that we know that God does not hear sinners. If you are not a Christian, there is only one prayer that God guarantees that he will listen to and answer. And that is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive my sins through Christ. Because the Bible says in Romans 10 that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said, whoever comes to me in that kind of prayer, that I won't cast out. So God does not hear sinners. On the other hand, John writes in John 9.31 that if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, guess what? God listens to him. So you must be a believer in God. You must be a Christian if you want to have confidence in prayer. The second thing is that you, as a Christian, must be living a life of determination to holiness and of humble repentance. Not that you must be perfect or no one's prayers would be heard. But Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist said this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 28, 9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. See, if you, Christian, have a a pattern of unrepentant, unconfessed sin in your heart, do not be surprised that the heavens seem cold to your prayers, regardless of how much faith you have. This is just another way of saying something that Jesus said, and that is that for our prayers to be heard, we must be abiding in Christ. We must be living our lives in communion with him. Jesus said in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We must be living a life of determination to holiness and of humble repentance that when we fail, we come to God and pray confessing our sins. And we have the assurance, don't we, don't we from, from 1 John, that if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. That's the second requirement to prayer. The third is that you must be a forgiving person. And that comes from our passage here. In verse 25, as as part of this, Mark writes, and whenever Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And we see here there are several parallels here with what we call the Lord's Prayer. Mark doesn't have his own separate record of the Lord's Prayer like Matthew and Luke do, but he pulls some of it in here. He refers to the one who hears and answers prayer as your Father, like the Lord's Prayer does. The, the background of that statement itself shouts of God's grace and of God's forgiveness. He speaks of this Father as your Father who is in heaven. Again, from the Lord's Prayer, that is, Christian, your Father is God himself. He also speaks here of the necessity of forgiveness, like the Lord's Prayer does. It says, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here, Jesus says that when you pray, you must forgive anyone of anything. You say, well, what does that have to do with prayer? Well, just this. That if we will not forgive, we demonstrate, at best, no consciousness of grace having been received by us, having given to us, that we so desperately need, which means that we are then expecting to be heard and answered on our own merit, which we'll not do as we come to our Father in heaven humbly asking for our needs to be met. The lack of a heart that will forgive is so foreign to a Christian that it affects everything that they do. The fourth thing is that We've seen this, so we just mention it here, that Jesus tells his disciples here that you must believe that you will receive. You must have faith. Faith is not the be-all and end-all, as we're seeing. There are other things here, but you must have it. You must be confident. You can't come to God doubting and expect to receive. James said the very same thing. The fifth thing is that the prayers that God hears and that God answers are those that are for things that are according to his revealed will. Even if all those other things are true for for you, of you, if you're praying for things that are contrary to the revealed will of God, God is not going to answer them. We are to pray for things that are in harmony with the word of God that reflect the Word of God and what He wants us to pray for. Why why should we pray for things that are contrary to God's Word? Why would a Christian do that? We should ask ourselves that. 1 John 5.14 says this, that this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, in line with his word, not contradicting it, don't expect God to answer your your prayer that your non-Christian girlfriend will accept your marriage proposal. God will not hear your prayer if it's contrary to his will, like a prayer for him to help you be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. In fact, you shouldn't be dating her in the first place. 
You shouldn't be opening yourself up to that. Also, you know, let's just say, let's just say it, and Scripture bears this out time and time again, and this is so important for us. It is not God's revealed will that you be rich or that you be healthy all the time or perhaps ever. And people who tell you otherwise are lying to you or are ignorant of God's word. Either way, you shouldn't listen to them. And we have to realize, when we talk about prayer, we, we, it's interesting to, to talk to people about prayer and just to hear the weird ideas that Christ, good Christians have when it comes to talking about prayer. And, and we have to realize that the purpose of prayer is not to make you wealthy or powerful, or important, or influential, or healthy. The purpose of prayer is that you will be made more like Christ. That's the purpose of prayer, because that's his will. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification. God, thankfully, is not going to give us things that would work at cross-purposes to that goal. Here's Here's some help, some instruction. Pray in any situation, in every situation, every difficulty. Pray not that God would get you out of it quickly, but that He will cause you to grow through it, to trust God in it, and learn what he wants to teach you by it. That's what we should be praying for. The prayers that God hears and answers are those, sixthly, that are asked with good and right motives for the glory of God. James 4.3 says that you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Your motives are wrong. Your desires are wrong. Your, your goal is wrong. The reason you're asking is wrong. It's like your seven-year-old coming to you as a parent and asking for a gallon of ice cream. You're not going to give that to them because you know what they're going to do with it. They're going to eat it. All. At one sitting. Probably right before bed. Or if you're praying for your co-worker to get fired because he keeps getting promoted ahead of you, God will probably not answer that in the affirmative. That's not praying in faith. And Romans 14.23 says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Pray that in any situation, God will bring glory to himself. You see how in all of these things, the the focus of prayer kind of moves away from me and what I want to what God is going to do. 
the last thing, the seventh thing here, is that prayer that is heard by God is prayer that comes from a thankful heart. Here's Philippians 4.6. You know Philippians 4.6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be thankful in everything. Be thankful for the fact that you're in a trial when you're praying about a trial. Pray, give thanks that you're being disciplined when you're praying about being disciplined, knowing that those whom God disciplines, he loves. And finally, this is sort of prayer prayer that, that God hears, Jesus says, this is in a way that I think includes all of the above, is a prayer that's offered in Jesus' name. And we know that that's not just the the tagline that you put on the end of a prayer to to sort of get the deed done. You know, Jesus did say, John 14, 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, he said, I will do it. What does that mean, to ask something in Jesus' name? It's not, again, just to say in Jesus' name, amen though we often say that. It is to say, acknowledging our, that our access to God in prayer comes only because of Christ, and in a desire to honor Christ with our prayers in order for us to become more like Christ, knowing that we have the authority from Christ to come to God through Christ. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. How should we pray? Pray that the fruit of the Spirit would increase in you. That's what we should pray. Pray for the the knowledge of God, for wisdom, for humility, for love, for forgiveness, to be kept to and through, or or kept from and through temptation. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the civil authorities. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husband. Now, that's kind of a daunting list, right? It could be discouraging. But Christian, remember that God is gracious. And because of Christ, because of his intercession at the throne of God for you, Christian, your prayers are heard by God, the good ones. And as we say so often, the answer to prayer is sometimes no. An example of that, real quick, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, you would think that if anyone could have their prayers answered other than Christ, that it would be Paul. And we read this about Paul's prayer in one situation. So, he says, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul says, I said three times, Lord, remove this from me. God said, no. God said, I have a purpose for it. And Paul recognized that. He learned that. Let us learn that as well. That when God says no, and he does say no at times, it's for our good. Wrap your minds around that, Christian, that even God's no to your prayers is a proof of his love for you. And it is an answer. You see, God has something we don't. Let's call it divine perspective. He knows everything perfectly, past, present, future. He knows you perfectly, better than you know yourself. And he knows everything else perfectly, things that you have not even considered uh, uh, when you come to ask him for a particular thing. And he loves you. Do you hear that? And he loves you. He is concerned for your good. He is concerned for your sanctification. He is concerned that you be made more like, like him. He's the one that said it. He's the one that put it in place. He's more concerned for your good than you are. There are times when I want something that I know is not good for me, but I want it all the same. My mind goes back to that gallon of ice cream. But God has the understanding and the wisdom and the love for you, Christian, to at times say no. But, beloved, the prayers of God's children have the ear of your Father in heaven. And he promises that prayer in the right way, for the right things, for the right reasons, will be answered. And so, pray those things and therefore pray them with confidence. Supreme confidence. Let us believe that we have received what we bring before the throne of grace. And above all, let us pray, people of God. Prayer is ours. We saw earlier that God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked, however much they may think he does. But prayer is a gift to God's people, for God's people, for the good of God's people. And if you are God's child this morning, rejoice in it and do it. Have faith in God, Christian, and know that he loves you and that he will give you all that you need, if not everything that you want. Thank him for that as well. And so Jesus teaches us and his disciples about prayer here and about the importance of right, ordered prayer. And as the disciples hear this, remember that, that need, that the power of believing prayer is going to become a hallmark of 11 of those disciples in the book of Acts. Let believing prayer be a hallmark also of the disciples at Reading Reformed Fellowship. Amen? Let's pray.
Our Father, we know that you desire that we grow in our faith, that we grow in our understanding, that we grow in our godliness, that we grow in our, our, the propriety of our prayer. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us these things, that your Spirit would, would take these words and would work them into our heart, that we may understand the gift that we have and the confidence that we can have when we come to you in proper prayer. And we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.